Good morning. That was really weak. Hopefully we'll get a little excited as we dive into God's Word. Uh, we'll start with a word of prayer, and then we will dive and Let's pray together. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you that we get to come here and worship the one true living God. Help us not to take that for granted. God, help us not to have that tainted with other worldviews. God, allow us to live fully for you. God, I pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And we will pick up and we will finish this chapter where Aaron began last week. We will, we will continue out the rest of the chapter. Some of you may like camping. Other of you may hate camping. I think it's one of these things that it's either one or the other. It's not just like, uh, uh, that's really loud. It's not really a, a mediocre middle ground. We don't really say, ah, camping's all right. It's, it's usually used this thing that either we love it or we hate it. Uh, my family loved camp, camping. We, we kind of grew up and we'd go camping quite often. Now, to some of you, camping is just seriously vacation setting up a tent, making a fire. Like, give me a hotel, they clean up afterwards. Like, that's kind of my style. We, we, we kind of went the camping route, mostly because it was cheaper, all right? And so we kind of went the camping route, and we love camping. In fact, Ashley even got to experience some camping with my family, okay? There's nothing like four brothers and my dad setting up a pop-up camper. Right? Talk about conflict, Okay, but we're sitting, this is the way it should go. No, this is the way it should, and it's just this, uh, maybe it's, it's just another tool God uses to show us our depravity, but as, as we're camping, we just love it, and, and, and actually, Ashley was with us this instance when we went to Ludington. Ludington was one of our favorite spots. It's along the... I guess coastline, if you will, of Michigan, right? The right along Lake Michigan, uh, beautiful little uh, state campground. In fact, you have they open up reservations a year in advance, and they start at 9 a.m. And if you don't get it in by 9:30, good luck. Okay. That type of awesomeness, all right, for a campground. <laughs> and so we would go camping here. I remember one time when we were younger, we went camping, and, and sometimes my mom just liked to do things. Right? We just kind of like to chill, ride our bikes or something like that, but she'd, she'd always organize something. And we're kind of like a, a last-minute family sometimes, and so, so we're kind of like, hey, let's go on this hike. All right, Mom, like kind of humoring her in this hike. She's like, it's only about 15 minutes. And so... Uh, we go on this hike because we want to see this lighthouse. And it was about 95 degrees. And in this campground, basically everything is sand. Right? And, and so we're walking to this lighthouse, and we're walking on sand the entire way. 95 degrees, walking in sand, little kid, I'm getting fed up. It's like 
the sand is burning. Like, this is like an epic trek across the desert. This is ridiculous. 15 minutes, that was a lie, Mom. There's no way this is 15 minutes. And so we journey. And soon this journey became not just getting to the lighthouse, it began going from little shade tree to little shade tree. And quick, getting our feet out of the scorching sand. There were thoughts of taking our shirt off and tying around our feet or something like that to just remove the pain. And so we began this journey, and we made stops along the way in resting. And finally, we got to the lighthouse, and we're like, yes, we can sit and we can rest. Hour and a half later. No 15 minutes. And so we get there an hour and a half, and we sit there, and we're like, good, I can just relax. I can just enjoy it here. And we wait until the sun goes down so the trek back is easier. Let's begin our passage, and and don't worry, I'll make the connection for us. Acts chapter 16, verse or 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw the idol. The city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, "What does this babbler wish to say?" Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you brought some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the foreigners, they spent their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that every way, in every way you are very religious. No, this is not the same kind of religious. We're talking about the Pharisees. This is a belief in supernatural. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation all over the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should see God and perhaps even feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your poets have said, we, are his, we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard this, 
that heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again. And Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined. Paul is taking a little break. He's on a stressful missionary journey, kind of getting run out of every town he's going to. He's doing the hard work of establishing, setting up churches in these areas. Then he's getting run out. In fact, he's in Berea. Some Jews from Thessalonica show up, and they kind of force his hand. He kind of leaves. He leaves some people behind. And so Paul goes to Athens, escorted by some Bereans, and he's kind of set there, kind of take a break from this. I had a stressful journey to the lighthouse. And I got to my destination, and I took a break. Paul has a much more intense journey. He gets to the location, and he cannot take a break. He cannot just rest. He cannot act like another tourist. Athens was a beautiful city. Amazing architecture. Incredible history. Now, of course, this was past prime Athens. This was not at the peak. There's only around 10,000 people there at this time. But it had great history. It was a great tourist destination. And so Paul shows up from his stressful journeying, from his stressful missionary work. He's sitting there waiting for his comrades to show up. And Paul is Paul. Paul can't help but notice what's around him. Paul can't help but feel agony for misplaced worship. Paul can't slip into tourist mode because he has pastor mode on full force. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. This provoking isn't just simply a tinge in the spirit. This is talking about a righteous anger. He's mad. He's looking around and saying, this isn't right. All these objects of worship, and not one of them is the true God. All this worship going somewhere where it shouldn't be going. All these souls craving for something that will not satisfy. Paul's heart goes out. And so he does what Paul does. He starts in the synagogue. He starts to reason with them. Start to talk to them about the true God. And so he does this. He says, he reasoned with the Jews and devout persons, those converted Gentiles. And then he didn't stop there. He went to this marketplace. And he reasoned with them there. You have to realize that in Athens, there's a common phrase that's easier to find a God than a person. Idols were everywhere. This marketplace that he's in, there's, there's city buildings that are dueling. The, the dual purpose is set up as a temple to this false deity. And so he's in the middle of this marketplace. And we can't just think of marketplace in general. 
Okay, it, it, it's this really this town center, and he's going there and he's sharing the gospel day in and day out. The problem is with their polytheistic faith, with their faith in many gods, they didn't get what Paul was saying. They just couldn't comprehend. In fact, they thought Paul was presenting to them two other gods. Sweet, we'll erect some statues for them too. And Paul says, hey, Jesus in the resurrection, they're like, Iezu and Anastasius, right? Right? They're like, Jesus in the resurrection? You ever think about what would be some funny names to name your kids? What if you named your kid, like, what? This was like, hey, what's your name? What? You know, what's your name? What? Like, you just do that all day long, that'd be awesome. Right. I always say it's going to be Billy Bob Boonstra, so watch out for that one. Uh, but, but sometimes we think of these things, and, and I think that's what's going on here. We know that Peter was named Petros, which means rock or stone. Right? And so now we have Paul presenting these truths. He's presenting Jesus in resurrection. And they're saying, sweet, Jesus, God, little g, and resurrection, goddess, little g, right? And there's these two deities that he's presenting to us. Let's add them to our fold. They're not getting it. They're not getting the message. That's why it says that he was a preacher of foreign divinities. I think that he's presenting these two other deities. And so because they didn't know this, they took him to their supreme court. The same court that tried Socrates four centuries earlier. Except Paul wasn't going there to be tried. He wasn't going there to put his intellectual prowess on display, right? He wasn't going there to make a philosophical argument. He was going there to present truth. Isn't Paul on trial? This is simply Paul being brought to the Areopagus, to the Supreme Court, to present a truth that they don't know. So Paul goes. And with Paul going, we can get into the sermon. End of introduction. There's four truths that Paul presents to the people at the Areopagus that I think we can apply to our lives today. Four truths that I think can radically transform our view of everything. Four truths that satisfy our soul. They're looking for philosophies. They're looking for things. They're looking for truth. And Paul is presenting the one true God. Listen to how he starts. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are religious. You believe in supernatural. Awesome. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I will give to you. They have so many, so many idols that they're saying, you know what? There might be one out there that we don't really know about. Let's make sure that we do right by him and, and, and make, and kind of make him, right? And so Paul's like, 
point of contact right here. Okay, they don't understand me. They think I'm talking about multiple gods. I'm going to single out the one God, the unknown God, that they think exists, and I'm going to explain it to him. Truth number one is there is a God, the unknown God. Truth number one, there is a God, and he's the unknown God. Paul does not begin by attacking their polytheism. He does not begin by saying, you guys believe in many gods, that's wrong. No. Instead, he says, you believe in an unknown God, he is the true God, and by the time Paul is done, they'll have no other choice to either abandon polytheism and believe in the unknown God, or deny and reject the unknown God and continue to crave after more and more gods. There's two choices Paul leaves them at the end. He does not attack this issue to begin with. He leaves it with them at the end. There's several types of different people that Paul reaches out to this passage. Each and every one of them is in need of something to satisfy their soul. Paul is seeing the glory that should be going to the one true God wasted on all these other gods. Not only is this a glory misdirection, but this is leading to deep soul dissatisfaction and more and more wasted glory. So we're all in search of something. And Paul is saying, hey, you guys are right on. And guess what? You're right about this unknown God, and he is the end of your search. He is what satisfies We all look for satisfaction in in things. I think of Michael Jordan, who celebrated his 50th birthday last year, the year before. And in doing so, there's a lot of articles coming out about Michael Jordan with, hey, what's he doing now? And each one of them, and I said, hey, he's just not really content where he's at. There's just something missing. There's, There's this dissatisfaction in his life. It's really interesting because one reporter who was, was talking about this made the statement that it's almost like Michael Jordan has a basketball-sized hole that he's trying to fill, but it can only be filled by basketball. Very interesting. Very interesting. In fact, that was the deity that worked best for him. That was the identity that worked best for him. That was the thing that satisfied this deep need best for him, but it never truly satisfied. It never truly lasts. Now, he's in desperate search of get back what he he, thinks he had. He didn't have soul satisfaction. He had the closest thing that he thought. And, And there's this deep longing. Truth is, Only the unknown God can fulfill the longing of our soul. Only the unknown God will end the relentless search for soul satisfaction. Are you coming here today? Maybe this is your first time to Big Woods. Maybe you've been here before. Are you searching for something in your dissatisfied soul? Are you searching for something to fill a void? Are you broken and in need of something else? You come here with this yearning in your heart. 
I've tried this, I've done that, I've, I've been here, and none of that has satisfied. None of that has completed me. If that's you here this morning, I pray that as we discuss who this unknown God is, that He can become known to you. If this is not you, if you're saying, I do know the unknown God, I, I have satisfaction in Christ alone, then I pray that we aren't satisfied in leaving Him unknown, but that we're making effort to make Him known. How do we know the unknown God? Paul not only says there is a God, an unknown God, truth one, he then says, he then continues in verse 24, and says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Truth two, knowing the unknown God brings the correct eternal perspective. Knowing the unknown God brings the correct eternal perspective. Or coming from the correct internal perspective, we can come to the unknown God. But by knowing Him, we'll have the fullness of a correct eternal perspective. Paul knows that they do not know the unknown God because if they did, they'd have a true grasp of eternity. Instead, here's their views. The Stoic view of eternity was we all exist as part of this cosmic God thing. We all exist as part of the world God. We die and our souls are released. Here's what I want you to think when we picture this. Think of the Force in Star Wars. Think of Avatar. Think of Pocahontas. Okay. All of these, a pantheistic worldview. A worldview in which everything is God, God is everything. That's the essence. I'm slamming Star Wars or Pocahontas. What I'm saying is when we're looking at those from a, from a biblical worldview, we do need to be discerning of what they're teaching. <clears throat> I also think of the circle of life in Lion King. The Epicurean view of, the, of eternity is we die and decompose. Only matter is eternal. Only matter is eternal. All that matters is matter. Matter is eternal. It always exists. It always will exist. We live, die, decompose. It's this backdrop in which he presents the gospel. Notice that this is totally different than Paul walking into the synagogue. This is different than what he is used to. The way I like to picture it is um, kind of like a VHS tape. Yes, I'm old enough to know what a VHS tape is. And a VHS tape, and you put it in the VCR, and you kind of hit rewind. And Paul's so used to doing this and kind of picking up here. Okay, you got this backdrop. Now I'm going to tell you about who the Messiah is. The Messiah is Jesus. He's he's the perfect Redeemer. And and they got the backdrop. Paul can't do that here. Paul doesn't just simply hit the rewind button. Instead, he takes it out of the VCR, puts it in the fancy, okay, they used to have, like, they were super fast rewinders. Uh, we had one that was sharp, shaped like a car because cars are awesome. Okay, and, and so we, we put it in this, you know, Corvette, and you push it down, and 
It's like right in the beginning, like that fast. And it was like the pinnacle of technology, right? And, and, and nothing could get better than the fast rewinder. And, and, and Paul does that here. He doesn't simply hit the resume button. Hey, let's take off where I'm at. No, he has to rewind all the way to the beginning. Because he has to hit them where they're at with their current eternal worldview. If they're going to come to Christ, if they're going to know the true Christ, they need to know who he is with their view of eternity. So he he starts to take the legs out of what they believe. He starts by making the case that God is creator God. Epicureans don't like that. God created everything. In other words, matter is not eternal. God is. Then he says... God is creator God, and guess what? He's not, because of that, he's not contained by temples. Because of that, he's removed from creation. He's separate and distinct from creation. Not really clashing well with the Stoic view. Not really clashing well with this everybody is God, God is everything. He's saying, no, God is removed. He created everything. Yes, he intervenes, but he's separate and distinct. And so Paul takes the legs out of what they believe. Again, building this case that the unknown God is the true God, and by believing in him means forsaking all other gods and turning to him alone. Now, I think sometimes we present the gospel, sometimes we, we share Jesus Christ, and we start where Paul likes to start with the truth of Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we do have to rewind a little bit and build the foundation as Paul built the foundation. My brother-in-law was recently uh, invited a friend to church. Now, keep in mind that Hershey is not an incredibly de-churched area. It is not the, look at the map of Pennsylvania, see where needs to be planted churches, and go there. It's relatively decently churched. And so my brother-in-law invites a friend to church, and they begin, and they're just kind of going throughout the service and things like that, and eventually his friend kind of nudges him and just asks him, you know, quietly, like, what are all the books people are carrying? What's everybody carrying to church? He did not know what the Word of God was. He did not know what the Bible was. I think so too often we assume people have a backdrop. We assume people are starting with a backdrop of a creator God. Paul rewinds. He says, first off, let me tell you who my God is. He's a creator God, separate and distinct from creation. And then he builds into the gospel. I think we are quickly... Losing some of that. We, we, we cannot make that assumption any longer. <clears throat> I think Paul, as he builds this case for their gods, as he builds this case for believing in a creator God means rejecting all other gods. I wonder if he quoted Jeremiah 10, verse 10 and 11. But the Lord 
is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus, you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. If there's a creator God, there's no other gods. He backs up and builds the case. You jump over the creation account in your presentation in the gospel. You immediately make the assumption that they must believe in a creator, God. Therefore, I'm just going to share Jesus instead of allowing them to see Jesus for who he truly is. You know, Paul did this when he said that God, the Word, was in the beginning. Through the Word, everything came. Colossians 1 also touches on this. Is your view of eternity more similar to the Stoics and the Epicureans than that of the view Paul is presenting here? Do we have a proper view of a Creator God and a God that's distinct from creation? If not, we need to evaluate who this God is. I don't think it stops here at this heavenly perspective. I don't think it starts at this and ends at this eternal perspective because Paul brings it to an earthly perspective for us. So not only, to rewind, is there a God, the unknown God, and not only can, by knowing the unknown God, we have a proper eternal perspective, but thirdly, Knowing the unknown God brings proper earthly perspective. Knowing the unknown God brings proper earthly perspective. Let's continue in verse 25. Now he, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to mankind all of life and breath and everything, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him. Truth is, it would probably be hard for anyone in Athens to believe in Jesus as, as God. They valued lifting people up. They valued this, the supremacy of position. And to present a God who's a carpenter from a small town who died on a cross, crucifixion is the ugliest, the most horrendous, ugly way to die. And so truly, if there's a Savior, he's not going to come from a background like that, and he's not going to die death like that. You see, to the Epicureans, their view was we must enjoy life. Avoid pain, enjoy life. It's kind of their philosophy. It's kind of what they lived by. Enjoy the fine things of life. It's almost a do-what-feels-right type of mentality. Or, to put it in present day, it's almost a YOLO mentality. You only live once, live it up. Then we have the Stoics. They had the mentality 
of listening that listening to your own reasoning and being the best you can will tap into your inner power that only you possess. Don't listen to inner feelings or outward circumstances. Just let reasoning be your guide. Very similar to a lot of self-help books we have today. Of course, the fall in that is it lent its way to pride and self-sufficiency. Here's what the unknown God says. He is not served by human hands, though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. We have a God that is completely self-sufficient. We have a God that is bigger than us. Here's what he says. I am am in control of everything. True joy and satisfaction are found in me. This joy and satisfaction will only be magnified when we are no longer limited by our sin. See, Paul brings something they don't like either. He brings this, this... mindset of we are all from Adam. See, Athenians, they they said, no, we are the Greeks. We are better than everyone else. Everyone else is barbarians. In fact, we descend from our native homeland, Attica, kind of spring up from there. Everybody else doesn't. We're separate. We're distinct. We're the best. Paul says, no, everybody comes from one man and he's a sinner. Everybody comes from one man and he's screwed up. Not really good with their worldview, their perception of themselves. Not only are you from one man, but the reasons the reason you exist is because God made it happen. Well, talk about a shot to pride. And he continues to break this down. Athens is not better than everyone else. Athens, just like everyone else, needs a Savior God. They're craving for something else that cannot satisfy. They need a Savior God because they themselves are offspring of Adam. They themselves are not no better. The truth is that our churches are being polluted with Differing mentalities. Our churches are being polluted with different earthly perspectives. Earthly perspectives that don't line up with the gospel, but line up with what we want it to line up. Let me explain. We have movements dedicated to making God our personal genie. You name it, you claim it. You love God, He loves you, He's going to give you what you want. We have TV shows, Real Preachers of L.A., that says when we love God, when we serve God, when we have enough faith, we're preachers. We drive Bentleys and have gold chains because God loves us. God loves us. He's going to give us what we want. It's called the Word of Faith Movement. Movement that is gaining ground. It's nothing new but it's prominent and it's quickly seeping into all areas. If God truly loves me, then he will make me happy. If 
God truly loves me, he will make me healthy, wealthy, and happy. Health, wealth, and happiness. A false gospel. The truth is, they say, this will be the best way to showcase who our God is. Those that know God, they're the happy ones. They're the wealthy ones. They're the healthy ones. And guess what? If, if, if that's not you, it's just because you don't have enough faith. False per- it's a perversion of the gospel. It's this creeping in of enjoy life now. It's this creeping in of somehow we become godlike and therefore can claim things. Little bits of both of these philosophies creeping in to Christianity. As we say, you're not healthy, you're not wealthy, get Jesus. If that's your view of God, then that's making God so much smaller than what He is. This is not preachers saying, God, make me humble. God, make me persevere when money's tight. God, give me cash flow. Not really jiving up with the gospel. You know what really makes God known? It's people like Jimmy Nichols. Mary Nichols was a girl in our youth group, and she was a few years older than me. And it's such a heart for the Lord. And she's always at the church. Her, her, her life goal is to be a missionary. And, and she's kind of working part-time at a camp. And just has a heart for the Lord. And, and, and I'm working at a, a pizza place delivering pizzas. And, and somebody had come in and they said, there was an accident outside the church. And, and so... I hear about it and, and, and come to find out Mary Nichols was killed as she was coming into the church parking lot. Somebody was speeding by another vehicle trying to pass them and not seeing that somebody was turning in. Jimmy Nichols, her brother, was at the church. Witnessed the entire thing. Fell on his knees and said, God, I don't understand but be glorified through this. God, I don't understand, but I trust you in this. It's satisfaction when times are tough. It's hope when times are tough. That magnifies who God is, not a God that gives us some money. It's us saying, we don't need money because all we need is you. It's us ridding ourselves and becoming more and more like him. It's people like Donna Rausch, who has a son serving in Afghanistan. And she's just a wreck every day because he's off serving. He's made it to the top. He's spec ops in the military and He's serving. Not only is he serving, but he's serving as God. Known as the guy who always prayed before his meal. In fact, there was an instance when he's talking about like, 
I knew something was wrong because sometimes this one time he didn't pray before his meal. I said, hey, what's up? And he's like, I was just hungry, you know. And, and it's just this mentality of he always does this. This is who he is, right? And, and making an example where he's at. People in uniform show up at Donna Rausch's house and inform her that her son has just been killed by an improvised explosive device. On the way back from being pinned down in a firefight and celebrating a victory. Donna falls on her face. God, I don't understand, but I know this is somehow part of your plan. Several people have dedicated their lives to mission work because of the example of Nikki Rausch. Because the example of Nicholas Ryan Rausch, a friend of mine. We belittle the gospel to make it little more than God being our genie. We're doing a terrible, not only we're doing a terrible injustice to who our God is, we're not believing in the true God. Just like the Athenians were setting up a false idol. And it's not the unknown God. Think about Paul. He's one of the greatest men of our faith, and he was laughed and sneered at. Look what they call him here. They say in, in verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? Literally, what does this seed picker wish to say? Look at this picture of this sparrow picking out bits and pieces of food, going from gutter to gutter, and just kind of grabbing all this material and then spewing it out. He's saying, Paul, you're really not philosophical enough for us. You're really not deep enough for us. Your thoughts aren't cohesive enough. You're kind of like this sparrow. You're just, you're just picking at different things. Why are you even here? You're so uneducated. Okay? That's Paul. One of the greatest men of our faith being called a babbler, being called incohesive. Now, Paul encountered a ton of oppression. Paul encountered a ton of of backlash. The truth is, nothing could get Paul down. Nothing could get Paul down. Kill me? Sweet. I'm, with, and I'm in heaven, you know? Let me live? Awesome. I get to proclaim the gospel. Persecute me? Praise the Lord. I'm suffering for Jesus. Every instance, you cannot get this guy down. This isn't Paul saying, sweet, God's giving me money. This is Paul saying, sweet, I'm getting satisfaction in him. Nothing money can touch. Nothing health can touch. This is so much greater. This is so much bigger. And I'm afraid that sometimes we diminish the unknown God to be just that. An unknown God. Instead of truly knowing Him for who He is in His Word. Are you more concerned about the joys in this life than the true joy found in Christ alone? Are you promoting yourself above others because of the intellect you possess? Are you finding joy and satisfaction in Christ alone, or are you still on an endless search for fulfillment? 
You see, preachers like this, they, they do not attack the heart issue. Say, oh, money will satisfy. Money will bring happiness. And Jesus offers, I will cure the need for monetary wealth. So the question must be asked, how do we come to know the unknown God? How do we come to know this God? Verse 27, that they should seek and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your poets have said we indeed are his offspring. Just another proof of, of, of Paul for, for promoting this word. He's saying, you know what? If we're really God's offspring, if we're really part of his, we don't create him, he created us. We're not going to create something that then creates us. That's our imagination. What we get is, is from something bigger. It's from God, and he really outlines these things. Even some of your poets are kind of getting some truth right here and there. And now you must come to a decision. Are you going to come to trust the unknown God, this God that brings proper eternal perspective, a perspective that matter doesn't just exist, it was created, a perspective that we are not God, God's separate from us, a perspective of... God does not exist to make us healthy. God exists to fully satisfy. And ultimately, we exist to glorify Him. And the ultimate example of how we can glorify Him is being satisfied in Him. So Paul has these different perspectives and he said, how do we come to this knowledge? How do we come to know Him? Knowing the unknown God comes through repentance. Listen to what Paul says here. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands everyone everywhere, all people everywhere, to repent. Because he fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness. The final truth is knowing the unknown God comes through repentance. Knowing the unknown God comes through repentance. Paul addresses this fact. He says, you must come to God, and God is just judge. One of the most terrifying things for us today is the fact that God is good. Right? Because we know that God is just. And if God is just and God is good, where do we fall? We're not good. We're broken. We're from Adam. We're sinners. We're in pursuit of filling some void. We're lost in sin. And He's going to judge. There's a day where He's going to judge us. So what happens? What must be done? There needs to be a turning from and a turning to. Literally, repent means to turn. He's saying, now that we've got to this point, now that you know that this God kind of eliminates all other gods, there needs to come a point where you say, I no longer want that. I'm placing my faith and trust in this. This unknown God. If not, then you will continue with your, un- continue with your many gods and continue searching for Him that satisfies.
Satisfaction comes after repentance. Sometimes we get that confused. I think of the story of the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler is like, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Jesus is like, keep the commands. Theologians in the room are like, oh, that's not right. Like, Jesus, you're kind of missing your own point. No, it's through grace, not through doing works. Jesus, you're going to miss the mark there. And Jesus is like, no, keep the commandments. Because the truth is, if we keep the commandments, if we are completely righteous, then we will have no guilt. The truth is, we cannot keep all the commandments. It's impossible. We, we are sinners. And so Jesus presents this dilemma to him. He says, keep the commandments. And the rich man says, I've kept them. He's like, he starts naming them. He's like, what's that one that you said? Uh, loving my neighbor as myself. Oh, yeah, that one. You love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus, I just told you that. Okay, if that's the case, give him your money. Wait, Jesus. But I do love him. Now, give him your money. You truly love him? As yourself, give him what you have. No, Jesus, that's, that's a step too far. No, Jesus, I, I do love him. It's about the heart, right? He's like, yeah, it's about the heart. Do it. Can't go there. Can't make that jump. We started out by saying that the, the unknown God will satisfy our soul. If we're simply looking for soul satisfaction in Jesus Even that falls short. Here's what I mean. The, the young man knew something was missing. The new, young man knew he needed something extra. Knew some, there was some craving within his soul for something bigger than himself. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're right, there's something else. It's me, believe me. He says, repent Turn from that and come to me. It's a turning. It's forsaking all other gods and saying, I no longer need this. Jesus, you're all I need. That results in soul satisfaction. That gives us the cravings. Because our cravings become new. Our desires become new. As Paul presents this, isn't it, even we present that to you, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, it's true. It doesn't matter if we say, oh, this is the unknown God, I want to follow him. And other people say, no, no, that's really not, I don't believe that is. It, it doesn't matter. There is an unknown God, he exists, he created the universe. That exists whether we acknowledge it or not. Paul says the time for ignorance is over. This is the truth. Either act upon it or reject it. New England Patriots played the New York Jets last week. Epic showdown, right? Rivals going at it. Results in overtime. Down to a field goal. Kicking a 51-yarder. Kind of long. Kicker goes up to kick it. Patriots, being kind of inventive of their own, kind of have this train mentality. Somebody gets behind somebody else. We're going to kind of push them so we can kind of get break through this, 
this line and get a, get a field goal block. The truth is, that's a rule that they broke. You can't do that. What ended up happening is they missed the field goal. But, the, which would have gave the Patriots a chance, but instead, they had a penalty. They moved the ball ahead, kicked a field goal. It was good. They lost the game. It didn't matter that they didn't know the rule. The fact is, the rule was true. The rule existed. Bill Belichick isn't going to say, Hey guys, I I know this, you know what? I know we did something wrong, but we didn't really know that one. Give us a break here. Not really the case. We are left with no excuse God is making himself known. God is revealing himself. And God exists. Our ignorance is not an excuse. It's, are we turning from and turning to, or are we rejecting the God of the universe, the unknown God? That's the case Paul makes, and that's the case I present to you this morning. Are we letting false philosophies creep in? Are we letting false mindsets diminish the true God? Creating nothing more than a man-made idol. Are we fully submitting ourselves and believing in, repenting from sin and turning to the true God, the God of the universe, the God that's made known through the pages of Scripture? And is this the God that we're presenting to others? Are we belittling him because it's convenient? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for who you are, God. I thank you for the opportunity that we can turn from our sin to you alone for salvation. God, thank you for offering your son on our behalf. God, your son that took the wrath that we deserve your son that took punishment that was meant for us. God, thank you that we can have our sin removed by placing our faith and trust in him. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of Paul, that we can know that the unknown God exists, that by knowing him will change our eternal perspective, that by knowing him will change our earthly perspective, And by only through repentance can we know him. God, help us to treasure this in our heart. Help us to evaluate whether we've fully trusted in you or not. And radically change both our eternal and earthly perspectives as we go this week. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.